with the coronavirus, we can look at states around the country. We can look at the federal government not following science, not following health recommendations. And that's out in the public for us to see. So it really raises the question, what's going on behind prison walls where we just don't have access to see what's going on? And so even if changes have been occurring, the level of concern I have is is very deep. Hey, everyone, it's Jenna. The Democracy Works summer break continues this week with another episode from our back catalog that has been updated. In the fall of 2018, I spoke with Peter Enns, associate professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University and author of a book called Incarceration Nation, How the U.S. Became the World's Most Punitive Democracy. So Peter studies the intersection of public opinion and criminal justice. In our first conversation back in 2018, we talked about how the if it bleeds, it leads mentality has really shaped public opinion around prisons and jails and getting arrested and tough on crime and and all of these sorts of things. In the follow-up conversation, we look at how some of those narratives have changed over the past two years, and also how they're impacted by both COVID-19 and the incidents of police violence that we have seen uh, over the past several years. Peter thinks that we have certainly made some progress, but there's still, frankly, a long way to go toward building a criminal justice system and a democracy more broadly that is rehabilitative as opposed to punitive. You'll hear first my conversation with Peter from fall of 2018, and then our follow-up from June of 2020. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so we are going to um, talk about the subject of mass incarceration today. And uh, the the title of your book asks the, the question or kind of begs the question of how the U.S. became the most punitive democracy in the world. And I know in the book you make the connection to um, public opinion. And so can, can let's let's start there. Why? Why do so many people in the U.S. want other people to, to go to prison? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a that's that's an important question, and I I think there's um, what we need to keep in mind is that although in some ways public attitudes are punitive in this country, how that punitiveness shifts over time, and that's a key aspect of this book, is plotting the public becoming more punitive through the late '60s, '70s, '80s, and '90s, and that. And why that happened really relates to news reporting of the crime rate. So there, there's a lot of factors all mixed in here. So what what do you what do you think the the media gets wrong, or or how does does the media contribute to this public perception? There's two aspects of this. One is you know we often hear the if it bleeds it leads uh, aspect. So violent crimes are overreported by news media. And then crimes um, committed by racial minorities are overreported. Then something else happens. When the crime rate goes up, those biases in reporting hold, so we're getting more coverage. So you get this interaction between more crime, more coverage, but the same old 
if it bleeds, it leads storyline. And that is a huge part of what then pushes the public towards this tough on crime stance. Is there a particular point in history when this cycle kind of got started? Yeah, so we we really see this starting uh, in the mid-60s, and we see it going toward the, really to the mid-90s, so a a long period. Mm -hmm. And um, what what was it about that kind of mid-60s point that that really was the, the catalyst? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, this is a period where we have uh, civil rights is a prominent issue. We have um, riots going on. But one thing that's really notable is the link that I, when I look at the data. So there's over 60 years of data in the book. The link between the crime rate, news coverage of crime, and public attitudes is consistent. So there's kind of the shift in the 60s, but that's not the whole story because it really continues through the 90s. And so where 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 do things stand now or how have things changed since the, the 90s? That's a, that's a critical question because what's happened is the crime rate's been going down since the 90s and not, not everybody realizes that. And what the data show is the public has gotten less punitive as the crime rate's gone down. And so we often still hear about crime rates and the public is punitive. That's true, but much less so. And so there's a lot of calls for criminal justice reform on the right and the left these days. And this fits with politicians responding to shifting public attitudes, which are, again, responding to shifting crime rates. All right. So at the, while... There's you know, maybe not as much enthusiasm for the idea of, of mass incarceration. It's on, on some level, there's already kind of this machinery in place to, to, to make it happen, right? Like the, the changes that came in previous generations were still kind of living through that, that same system. Is that right? Yeah, that's well put. Because the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. So to undo something of that magnitude, it's just we can't turn off a switch. And, and many people wish we could. Uh, the cost to mass incarceration are immense, both on a financial level, but also to people's lives. And they're not, although those costs affect everyone, they affect some groups more than others, right? So racial minorities and those of lower socioeconomic background are much more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system. So even though there's growing recognition among the public and even politicians that we need to make changes, it's hard to do so. But some really important, meaningful changes have been occurring. Like what? So one uh, one example is there's been a lot of talk recently about the cash bail system, how unfair that is, how strange it is that if you can't afford if you're uh, arrested and you can't afford uh, a certain amount of money that you're going to stay in uh, in prison or, or actually in jail until your trial, right? And so a lot of localities, some states are revisiting this. So that's a, a very important change. Uh, decriminalization of certain drug offenses is another important change. Some prisons have actually closed. So we do see evidence. Uh, and the overall incarceration rate has been going down. So not nearly... Uh, as uh, going down not nearly as much or as quickly as many people would like, but we can see these shifts occurring. All right. And so I, I know you, you talk also in the book about um, people who, who are in, in prison and, and who come out of, of the system. Um, how does that impact their attitudes toward government, toward you know, democracy in, in general? Yeah, well, you can first uh think about how you know day to day we experience politics and what's our most likely connection to politics so is that uh 
you know, is that hitting a pothole? And why hasn't this road been fixed? Uh, is that going to the DMV? And sometimes it's like, wow, that was a really quick experience or that line was really frustrating. Well, if you've been uh, in prison, you know, a lot of your experience with government has involved police and the criminal justice system. And so that tends to have a negative effect on political participation. There's a second component where voting uh, is limited. And there are some states where if you've been convicted of a felony, you served your time and you've been released, now you're off parole. Totally everything's done. You still cannot vote. So Florida is an example. And so Florida is often pivotal in presidential elections. And those uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people who do not have the right to vote because years and years and years ago, they were convicted of a, of a felony. So that has a permanent effect on politics. We talked uh, recently with your colleague, Frank Baumgartner at, at UNC, um, who just has a, a new book out all about um, citizens and, and traffic stops and that kind of interaction with police. And in that book, Frank talks a lot about um, this notion of an empathy gap for, you know, there's there are certain communities of, of color that are, are great, have a, are more greatly impacted by these, these traffic stops and searches and things. And um, it kind of has been a, a problem for a while because, you know, middle class white people, the people who tend to have more political power, don't realize what's happening. Is, is there a, a parallel to be drawn there, do you think, between mass incarceration where the, the people who are in that kind of political power role might not be, be aware of or be you know, cognizant of what's happening in, in the, the prison system and those, those populations? Absolutely. I think these ideas are definitely interlinked. And I think one one way to think about it is when somebody's um, incarcerated, if they've been convicted, if they were in fact guilty, and sometimes innocent people are, are convicted and in prison, but if they were in fact guilty, they're being evaluated and judged probably based on the worst thing they ever did. And so you could kind of reflect. And if we all thought of the worst thing we ever did, and if that was how we were publicly evaluated over and over and over again, that's a much different scenario where um, typically we, if you're on a job interview, you're trying to put your best foot forward and you prepare as much as you can and you're being evaluated hopefully on your best accomplishments and the, the most positive things you've ever done. And so, yeah, I think this notion of an empathy gap is, is really important. So how do our kind of the, the country's attitude toward toward prisons and, and incarceration fit in with the attitudes about some some of the other kind of social fabric if you will of of our country? Sure. So I'll, I'll, there's a lot of things that come to mind with with that and one is what happens when uh somebody leaves prison and tries to re-enter society. And so I mentioned we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Most of those currently incarcerated will leave prison. And so what happens? Almost everybody, uh, regardless of your political view, wants successful re-entry. We want individuals to come back to society, to become employed, to become contributors to society. So there's this common goal, yet this idea of a disciplinary state or a punitive state um, the parole board and corrections oversees this. And so if we think uh, about the conditions imposed on those who reenter society, so many, uh, we often talk about high recidivism rates. A lot of this is just parole revocations for technical violations. So if somebody um, has been addicted to drugs, 
uh, almost by definition, unfortunately, there'll be relapses with an addiction. Well, that relapse to addiction implies drug use, which is a technical violation of parole, which can get you back in prison. And so we could support this in a social way. So counseling, treatment, uh, job opportunities. Many, many people, um, and some I know who have left prison, their first night is in a homeless shelter because there's no support there. And so instead of viewing this as a criminal justice correction side, this could be a social support, social welfare view. And I think I mentioned that the level of the public's punitiveness has been declining. This to me is a real important question. Is public opinion shifting to where it will support uh, re-entry based on best practices and the most supportive policies we can do? Or will there still be support for even though um, you committed a crime, so you're never going to have the same opportunities. And I think it's absolutely critical that we make this shift. So we've, we've been talking a little bit about some of the, the reforms that, that have happened in the, the past couple of years. Where do you, you see that going? And do you think it's, it's maybe enough to kind of reverse this trend that we've seen going back to the you know, 1960s? The balance is definitely on the punitive side and the punishment side. And that is illustrated in aspects of the length of our sentences and how that compares to other countries. That's illustrated in terms of uh, systematic, systematic features like solitary confinement, that, um, I, uh, just how families can communicate and visit. Uh, there's over 2 million kids who have a parent incarcerated in this country. And oftentimes, um, individuals are sentenced far away from their families. So just visiting um, a family member. So we definitely are on the punishment side of that, that continuum, in my opinion. So there's been periods in the U.S. history where there was education in prison was more available. There's been periods when there's been more experimentation. There's also been periods that were worse. So I mentioned I taught in Auburn Correctional Facility. When Auburn was started, every inmate had to maintain absolute silence. They could not communicate. They could not say anything. They could not even gesture. Uh, and this led to massive psychological breakdown, suicides. That was viewed as part of the rehabilitation process. I would view that as an uh, extreme form of punishment. And Auburn was one of the first prisons um, in the U.S. And the Tocqueville actually visited Auburn prison when he came to the U.S. So, so um, going full circle there. But the warden uh, came in as a prisoner and, and spent time in as a prisoner and nobody knew it. And so when he saw that, that introduced some of the reforms in that era. Hmm. Wonder if, if we'd ever see that happen today, you know, member of Congress or any any kind of government official living on that, you're know, trying to live that experience. I think it would certainly help close that empathy gap yeah, if it happened. For sure. We will be right back for part two of the conversation with Peter Enns. And we are back with our postscript conversation. We've heard so much about the prison system over the past couple of months as COVID-19 outbreaks are happening in, in prisons and jails across the country. And Peter, the, the last time we talked, um, your sense was that public opinion was moving away from a, a punitive mindset, but um, elite opinion, you know, the, the media, 
public officials were slower to change. And I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, given everything that's happened, both with COVID and also the the, the conversations about Black Lives Matter and, and those movements, where do you think things stand today as, as far as, as public opinion and, and criminal justice and maybe how have things changed uh, over the course of the, the past couple of years? Yeah, thanks, Jenna. This is certainly an important and an interesting time. And public opinion has continued to shift in a less punitive direction. And I think the protests we've seen demonstrate such an important manifestation of public attitudes, also frustration on the part of so many. And yeah, historically, um, the legal system and political elites have followed public opinion, both in terms of as the incarceration rate went up um, and in recent times as the crime rate's gone down and the public has become less punitive. And I think it's kind of an open question right now how much change these protests will lead to. And I think a lot of, although the public's been moving in a less punitive direction really since the mid 90s when the public was at its most punitive point. I think right now a much broader segment of America is tuning into this issue and becoming much more aware of injustices and discrepancies and abuses in the legal system in this country. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that that you brought up during our last conversation was some of the the struggles that people who are in jail have around getting basic supplies through the the commissary system and I think that has certainly come into play a lot as we think about, you know, people having trouble getting things like hand sanitizer and soap and and things that are really essential for for public health during a pandemic. I mean, do you see any opportunity or, or do you think that some of the the increased attention on these types of things might might move the needle at all toward, uh, you know, changing conditions for people who are incarcerated? Well, I, I hope so. But a, a parallel issue is the situation with coronavirus and COVID has gotten so dire in the prison system. And so the need for support just to maintain basic health has gotten so much higher. And so one example comes from San Quentin Prison in California, more than a thousand infections, more than 900 diagnosed in the last two weeks. And the reason is these are linked to a transfer of more about 200 people from a separate um, prison in California to San Quentin. And at the time of that transfer, there were zero reported infections, and now it's just exploding. And so, you know, we were kind of talking about last time we had a chance to chat, just basic opportunities to call one's family, or could you visit your family or get you know, uh, uh, the basic supplies you need. But in a pandemic, the need is so much higher. And so it, to me, it's just a, an incredibly concerning situation that the news is starting to pick up on, but just not enough attention to how dire conditions are. Right now, the Marshall Project's reporting almost 50,000 cases. And this is especially frightening because it's it's most likely a massive underestimate of 
uh, coronavirus infections in the state and federal prison system right now. What's your sense of the how how the media is 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 approaching these types of issues? Do you think that they're more receptive now than they they were even even as recently as 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 a year or two ago? Definitely more receptive. It's a it's a question about is it enough? And you know my thinking on this issue has changed um, and continues to evolve. And I think at the time I wrote Incarceration Nation, I was very much thinking about how much has changed. And so from the mid 90s to 2016, when the book came out and the declining punitiveness and the shifts in the legal system, but really focusing even more than I had been at the time on where we need to go and what does a just system look like and what do our goals need to be? So not not about are we changing, but are we getting to where we need to be and are we getting there fast enough? And with the coronavirus, we can look at states around the country. We can look at the federal government not following science, not following health recommendations. And that's out in the public for us to see. So it really raises the question, what's going on behind prison walls where we just don't have access to see what's going on? Uh, that relates to what when we see killings uh, by police and brutality in public being filmed, if that's going on with what is being filmed when they know it's being filmed, what is going on when we cannot see in the prison system? And so even if changes have been occurring and there are there is media attention to these issues, which is so important to highlight the, the positive shifts, to the level of concern I have is, is very deep. So thinking about the, the kind of population issues, I, I mean, have have we seen any evidence of or, or do you think we will see evidence that the longer term effects of COVID might lead to, for example, changes in sentencing or, you know, who who is p- placed in jail or not or, or some of those longer term implications as, as far as the, the, the criminal justice system as a whole? There's a lot of scrutiny and attention to police and the police system right now and a lot of calls to defund the police. And I think really thinking holistically about the legal system in general. And so we know with the U.S. having the highest incarceration rate in the world, it spends way too much and is not sufficient both spending too much and not allocating those resources in a way that makes the public safer and improve society. And we're starting to hear the conversation now about police and how how much police budgets, how high they are and how and questioning how the money's allocated. And I think we need to bring these conversations together to reimagine how the legal system works in this country. And hopefully that will lead to shifts in sentence length because we know sentences are too long. And that's partly why the spread of the, it's both the conditions in prisons, but there are a lot of people with already existing health conditions or older populations making it more problematic. So I don't know what the specific shifts will be, but I hope the conversation and the critical reflection on the entire system occurs to lead to to hopefully positive outcomes. Where is the money going currently? I mean, as, as, as we've been talking, it's certainly not going toward 
you know, individual inmates or care or, or those types of things. But yet, as you said, we spend the most money of any country in the world on, on our criminal justice system. So where's, where's that, that breakdown? What's, what's that, the kind of disconnect there? Yeah. Some has just to do with the size of the prison population and then the facilities that have to be built. So a lot of that money is going to staff uh, but again, that's typically correctional officers uh, as opposed to social workers or providing job training. So that that's an issue. And essentially, the, the we also have to think about costs in terms of the costs that occur. With this many infections in prisons, it's going to lead to huge health costs trying to deal with this, where the cost of releasing some folks and providing masks and moving people around at a smart time when we might have been able to spread out populations, anything that could have been done earlier would have saved costs. So there's also, I think, in addition to where the money's going, is how it's being thought about and decisions are not being made based on long-term costs. But I don't want it to be, I don't want to imply it's all financial. Because again, I think if we treat those who are incarcerated as humans, our decision-making strategy is going to look different and we're going to save money as a result of that. Meaning we don't have to make the decisions just to save money. If we make what's a morally right decision, as a result, the system will save money. So what do some some reforms look like? Well, one key, if we're thinking longer term, is to recognize that almost all those currently incarcerated will be released. And so the more we can do, and we've talked about this a little bit last time, to prepare those for release so they are ready to enter society and as, as much as possible that is going to be super helpful. The other thing that we want to look at is that how we, we, you just mentioned, Jen, a sentence length, these types of things, the cost of a 20-year sentence is massive. How difficult that makes coming back to society is unbelievable. And yet the evidence that that deters crime is essentially non-existent, and so we need to um, we need to shift how essentially how we how we punish, and then we really need to yeah just completely rethink what our goals are and how to how to attain those goals, and this can be a daunting task or endeavor, but I think the key to move forward is to start with. What can we shift now and just keep making changes? And so, although we want to think big and change and think about system-wide changes, we don't want to make the task of changing an entire system stall what can be done now. And I think moving forward like that, and I think that those who are protesting egregious police behavior in the streets and the murder of um, individuals like George Floyd this is, it's a call for action and anywhere that action, productive action can, can occur, it needs to be pursued. Yeah. So is this, is this a, a situation where we can walk and chew gum at the same time? I mean, can 
the criminal justice system fight COVID, but also keep an eye on some of these longer term reforms? Or is the the kind of attitude going to be, well, we need to deal with this crisis right now. We're going to just push all this other stuff down the line. Yeah, I do fear that that trade-off could be perceived by especially those involved in working in the in the prison and criminal legal system. I I would say we need to look at them in tandem as much as possible. And I think I think state government and the federal government with the federal prison system has a responsibility right now to call for and demand transparency and disclosure within the prison system. And so they need to say, we need to, the whole world needs to see what's going on. And if that reflects badly on us, we need to take that as a call for change. So I think a natural reaction in any sphere, when the news isn't good, when the news is intensely problematic, is try to close off information. And it has to be the opposite right now. And the public and journalists should demand information and those in the um, in the legal system need to call for that information to make that available because it's information about what's going on that will allow us to make the informed decisions about about changing the system in a way that benefits everyone and we should add those who are working inside the prison system have also seen incredibly high infection rates. Correctional officers are just disproportionately affected. And so this is, you know, it it starts with thinking about those who are incarcerated as humans. But we need to recognize those working in the prison system are also affected by this. And so this making prisons and jails more healthy environments benefits everyone. So it's when you think of it from that angle, it's almost incomprehensible how the system has let infections grow at this exponential rate. Yeah, yeah, it's like this system where it just seems like you know everybody's unhappy and everybody's miserable, and yeah, just as you said, it doesn't have to be this way. It could just be a, a much different shift in, in attitude or, or shift in mindset that, that would benefit everyone. One thing we haven't touched on that I think is really important is to continue to recognize racism in the legal system. And this affects, of course, policing. This affects the prison system. And this needs to be part of the conversation. And you know, it's not something that we can just flip a switch and say, oh, here's the here's the policy that will fix that. It's it's of course it's not so simple, but it also has to be part of the conversation and we have to acknowledge it. And if it's if we're not and if policymakers and those who are seeking reform and those in the criminal legal system need to continue to make sure race and racism and thinking about anti-racism as part of the conversation to move forward toward solutions. One specific thing that I think has gotten a lot of attention and, and maybe might be a, a, a first step, I'll, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is the the all the attention about the bail system. I've seen so many calls on social media and elsewhere to donate to various 
bail funds. And I, and I think that aspect has really been brought to light more about how it can just be this kind of revolving door or, you know, people who are incarcerated simply because they don't have the money to post bail. I mean, so does does that strike you as as a, a first step or maybe one area that's low hanging fruit for, for lack of a better term as far as as places to start thinking about reforms? Absolutely. And some states have moved to eliminate cash bail. And I think, you know, that's an example I pointed to um, from time to time as evidence of the system changing and likely in response to declining public punitiveness. Because as the public becomes more open to thinking about reform and more open to critiques of the legal system and, and just frankly less punitive, the notion that somebody is incarcerated because they don't have the money, this is pre-trial we're talking about in, in so many cases, where they have not been convicted, they're being held in jail because they can't afford bail. And the notion that that just strikes against the moral fabric for so many people. And so I think... Those types of of situations and policies, as they get more attention, hopefully it leads people to question even further. Well, that's going on. What else is going on? And then as people learn more, they're able to advocate more and just as the level of concern grows. And so, you know, a, a point I often make is even if the public's been moving in a less punitive direction, there's still a high level of punitiveness and we're still an incredibly punitive legal system. So just because we're going in the right direction doesn't mean we don't need to still rethink and reimagine and have major changes among the public to help push for change. So what, um, what other, other research questions are you, you thinking about right now, Peter? Do you have uh, follow-up work to Incarceration Nation that, that maybe builds on, on some of the, the work you did for that book? For a long time, and I find this quite interesting, lack of confidence in the police corresponded to a concern that crime was rising and police weren't doing enough. And so when the public felt they didn't have confidence in the police, it was they wanted the police to do more. And I think what we're seeing right now is a massive shift in how attitudes toward police and the legal system exist and what's underlying that. Because now we're starting to see evidence that lack of confidence in the police doesn't reflect public opinion wanting more policing, but actually reflects a concern with policing and too much policing and that there's actual over-policing. So the structure of public opinion seems to be changing. And this is something as a, as a public opinion scholar, I'm very interested and in, in looking into right now. As a, a public opinion scholar, you'll have no shortage of, of things to watch and, and work to do through the rest of this year and and beyond, um, what are what are some of the things that you're going to, to be keeping an eye on or, or are on your radar as we head into this fall with with the election and you know everything else that's going to be coming down the pike? Yeah, well, we've seen the support for Black Lives Matter go up substantially. So, are these 
shifts that that last, or are they, um, you know, an uptick that if that then decreases? So the permanence of these shifts is something I'm going to be looking to. Partisan differences are always important, especially as we uh, approach an election. So oftentimes we see the the polling data reported as the public as a whole, but digging in a little deeper to our is it the Democrats' attitudes who are shifting? Is it Republicans? Is it independents? And and that's because we're in such a politically polarized era. These partisan differences shed a lot of information on what's going on. And then the other thing I'm I'm super interested in. Typically, elections can be presidential elections can be predicted by knowing approval of the president, how the economy is doing, and looking at these big factors like that. And is this going to be an election where views of Trump and how the economy is doing drive votes and and partisanship? Democrats vote for Biden, Republicans vote for Trump, or are these underlying issues and controversies going to affect? both whether voters turn out and, and how they vote. And so, mm. and this is made even more complicated, of course, by COVID and vote by mail and different states following different policies. And there's, um, you know, and and being discouraged from Trump. So there, there's a lot of uncertainty around the 2020 presidential election and looking to the polls to help give us insight as we get closer to that date is is something I'm going to be tuned into and and everybody should be looking at. Do we know um, where the shifts in attitudes toward police and, and criminal justice are, are happening, whose attitude is changing or it has, has changed most perhaps um, throughout you know recent weeks and months? Yeah, it's almost entirely from Democrats and independents. And so that's, that's kind of, on the one hand, maybe not surprising, but, but an important pattern to consider. And when we see all three groups, Democrats, independents, and Republicans shifting their views in the same direction, that really speaks to the power of the opinion change. But in this politically polarized environment, in, in, in some situations, uh, I haven't seen this with um, in recent weeks, but you can see sometimes economic evaluations actually going in opposite directions, depending on who is president. And so, um, yeah, if, if all three groups are going in the same direction, that speaks to the, the depth and power of the change in public opinion. Thank you, Peter. And uh, we'll link to your book, Incarceration Nation, in the show notes. And thanks for joining us. All right. My pleasure. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.